0: acknowledge <laughs> the traditional owners
1: of the land as the Boon Wurrung people and um, acknowledge any Elders past, present and any Aboriginal people here today. Uh, my name is Jessie French, I'm the Associate Producer here at M Pavilion and tonight we are here for our second consortium talk. Uh, the consortium came together when we originally approached different arts organisations offering our space as a place where they could have programming that maybe didn't fit in, in their rooms or galleries or spaces or studios Uh, and when we all came together it was West Space, Next Wave, Gertrude Contemporary and RMIT Design Hub. Uh, The changes to the Australia Council funding had just been introduced and there were more current issues on the table that we all decided that we needed to kind of band together and form a consortium to discuss current issues in the arts. Uh, Tonight's talk has been led by Liang at West and I'll pass over to her. Thanks, Jessie.
2: Um, Thanks so much for coming this evening. Um, I firstly just want to thank M Pavilion for hosting us tonight and thank them for bringing Zannie down to Melbourne for this talk. Uh, And I want to say a big thank you to our speakers tonight. Thanks for giving us your time. Um, Tonight, we're going to be talking about the intersection between gentrification, real estate and the arts. It's no secret that Australia's experienced a 20-year boom in housing prices, with prices increasing, uh, rising by 121% in the last 20 years. With this in mind, the question of space and the lack of it, is ever-present for arts organisations and artists alike. Uh, Connecting to this is the way in which the arts is often instrumentalised in the process of gentrification, which uh, is the movement of the affluent into lower-class areas. As the writers of seminal essay The Fine Art of Gentrification identified, it is of urgent importance that the arts community understand what the process of gentrification is, and our role within it in order to respond in a meaningful way. So this begs the question, how can arts organisations critically engage with issues surrounding gentrification while creatively creating sustainable spaces for the presentation of the arts? Um, So this subject is of great interest to me uh, and this discussion connects with the current um, exhibition, Factory Fetish, which I've curated with Tel Aviv-based curator Joshua Simon at West Space. Um, and it explores that relationship between capital uh, gentrification and the arts. Uh, in fact, we're lucky to have two of the artists that are uh, presenting works in that show. Sydney-based artist Zanny Beck, whose work focuses on political activism and community, and whose curated exhibition "There Goes the Neighborhood" in 2009. Um, Look specifically at gentrification in Sydney and was a real inspiration for me when actually putting together my show. Um, Also, we have um, artist and writer Sean Dochray, whom is the founding director of TALIC Arts Exchange in Los Angeles, was the founding director of TALIC Arts Exchange in Los Angeles and initiated the global knowledge-sharing projects ARG and the public school. Emma Krimmings is a filmmaker and the director of Gertrude Contemporary, and Philip Adams is a choreographer and founder and artistic director of Philip Adams Ballet Lab. Uh, So we'll we'll kick off by asking each speaker, maybe starting with Sean, just to introduce themselves and and the kind of topic or question, and then we're going to have a really informal chat, considering we have quite a small audience, you know, jump in. It's going to be very informal, so uh, if you have questions, please don't be afraid.
3: Hello, I'm Sean. Uh, I got volunteered first because I have notes, but but my notes are like writing a million things down and then (laughs) not knowing which which part I'll start in uh, until I start talking. So now I'm just wasting a bit of time to get used to the microphone. Okay. Um, Yeah, I come from uh, the United States, probably obviously. Um, And I've moved here to Melbourne two and a half years ago. So I I actually don't feel like I have a whole lot of perspective about Melbourne. Um, I mean, there are some similarities like in certain ways, like uh, in terms of urban form, but I don't think it's useful to make too much of those. Uh, So I actually remember the very first time, this isn't in my notes, but the first time that I came to visit Melbourne, like five years ago, because my wife is Australian, uh, I became really obsessed with housing here because uh, I went out to Pentridge uh, jail and um, they were redeveloping it at the time into a uh housing development and it was just so strange the kind of advertising it's like Pentridge Piazza and like really happy <laughs> couples and you know it's a prison so <laughs> I think every time I because of that every time I come back to Australia uh it's like I become fixated on it and it's really easy to because the newspapers all kind of <laughs> are really obsessed with it as well and everyone you talk to <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, uh, so I have like one and a half minutes left to talk about Los Angeles. Uh, I ran a space for like a, a nonprofit for about 10 years. Um, and It was in uh, Chinatown where there's a lot of art galleries and that most of them were commercial and they would sort of grow and become more successful as the sort of real estate bubble was developing, that there was like a a real correspondence between uh, the health of the real estate market and the kind of art market. Uh, And what this meant was that we as a nonprofit who didn't really sell anything like kind of struggled to exist in this context. And in fact, our rent went up to such a degree that we could no longer uh, afford it and we lost our lease. And in that neighborhood, I lived in the neighborhood as well, and I also got evicted because they wanted to sell the building. So you know, it was like a lot of upheaval, personally, uh, due to real estate. Um, but that's not the end of the story, is that uh, at a, when we finally lost our space, and we thought, well, what are we going to do now? Do we move to a whole new part of Los Angeles? We've spent a lot of time like, developing roots here. Like, we know a lot of people. All our stuff is here. We've done a lot of thinking with the idea that we're based here. And we decided we'd, we'd just hang on by our fingernails. And so what we did was we moved into a back alley in a basement. <laughs> so no longer a shop front. It was, it was sort of a step down you know, if you're thinking from the perspective of an exhibition space. But if you're thinking from like a different perspective, uh, hey, at least we got to stay in the neighborhood. And a, uh, what happened was this sort of necessitated a change in our program. So it no longer really made sense to uh, to sort of like put on this like pristine object or, you know, I mean, we weren't doing that. But even still, we were still like operating according <coughs> to the logic of exhibiting things for people to come in and see. And that doesn't make as so much sense in the basement <laughs> You know, next to all these, like where the Chinese restaurants are dumping out their fat and everything. So we ended up starting three new programs, which I think were kind of interesting from the perspective of space. And one was we—I mean—we got rid of our exhibition space, uh, and we uh, we devoted our space entirely to being a school. The second thing was we started a video exhibition program not in our space anymore but we went around to all p- people that we knew in the neighborhood and asked if we could install TVs in their, in their shops and uh, houses and, and we called it the distributed gallery and so you'd go on a tour sort of through the neighborhood of Chinatown basically connecting people that we were um, close to. And the third one was we created a fake gallery in Berlin which only existed as sort of marketing material um with real artists, uh, but we without the sort of overhead of actually paying rent on a gallery and um, and yeah in hindsight and not even in hindsight, I think as we were doing it, we realized that uh, uh, rent had always been the very first thing we'd ever do. I mean it was, rent was the, the the first place we'd ever spend our money because the landlord was the most strict, you know, like we would volunteer, but the landlord wouldn't volunteer (laughs) Uh, and our imagination was getting kind of confined to the space everything became about the space how do we keep the space how do we preserve the space like because and the limits of our sort of like creative imagination became what can we do with the space and how do we sustain this space and I think giving it up actually opened up some possibilities but um, I know I'm going on too long now so I'll just hand over. Mm -hmm. Thanks.
4: I don't think I need to say anything because I'm virtually looking in a mirror.
3: <laughs>
4: um, so I um, took over Gertrude Contemporary, I think, um, well, it's two years, um, a month shy of two years. And look, when I, I took on the organisation, um, which is a venerable organisation with an, an incredible, um, uh, you know, rich history um, of supporting some um, of Australia's Greatest um, artists, effectively, and and it continues to to um, move that mission forward. But I, I took it on with the full knowledge that um, it had, you know, a very 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 large um, housing problem, and. That problem um, you know is is effectively what what we're talking about um, today. and you know that's that's the result of you know if you you look at the origins of Gertrude, um, a, a collective of artists who effectively all wanted to kind of work together to have to build a, a community. They're all kind of, I think uh, graduates of VCA, um, supported in essence by VCA, um, kind of uh, Bureaucracy um, and Creative Victoria, then Arts Victoria, to sort of take over a, a space in a in a sort of um, not so well to do part of Melbourne. Um, otherwise known as Fitzroy, even saying that now just feels like I'm chewing glass. You know, it's like um, so. You know, uh, here builds this. Um, you know, this this kind of large space, um, driven ultimately by um, artist studios and artists, and then naturally hatches from that an exhibition space, and you know, the rest is kind of uh, history. So. In that time, from the sort of mid '80s to present day, at about 2000, I think that was when you know real estate really started to get its get its skates on and its kind of rocket launcher, and it just went stratospheric. So, 200 um, percent increase in rent um, happened over effectively sort of a 12 period, um, 12 year period, and you know now being in. in uh, receipt of sort of two years there, I've seen the systematic um, kind of, I guess, damage to an organisation's operations. And watching some of the most extraordinarily uh, creative and driven people um, maintain this uh, incredible edifice, which, which in many ways is, is is a sea anchor, you know, where, um, as, as Sean was saying, it, it ultimately does drain creativity, you know, trying to to literally, you know, s- fill all of the holes with um, la- large wads of cash and that, you know, the man being one single landlord um, receiving, you know, kind of large amounts of income. So here we have an incredible organisation with um, a very large problem. And the reason in a lot of ways it had that problem because, you know, uh, you've got these two things happening simultaneously. You've got kind of operational imperatives and then you've also got, um, you know, uh, your um, program imperatives. So you've got, you know, you have to ensure that you have space for the artists. So the uh, artist studios were um, effectively kept at the same sort of level so that, in terms of rental, so that artists could access those large spaces. And And then other income was found to ensure that that continued to happen. So rather than being able to sort of innovate, you know, I don't know, a campaign to potentially buy the building or um, an opportunity to diversify um, income streams, it's sort of, the rent just continued to sort of hike. And I guess one of the first things I did in moving into Gertrude Contemporary was um, to uh, obviously you know, um, you know, explore a a bit of a political campaign but also to give in notice. Uh, So that created then an imperative so uh, it meant that there is this sense of urgency um, that that Gertrude now needs to move and that in order to move it also has to protect um, 16 artists who are Part of a a rolling program. And with that, you know, it's done also with the knowledge that that there is a possible um, and very potential site to move into. Um, So part of that sort of messaging is also uh, crucial. But I think I'll stop banging on about the Gertrude story and I'll pass it over to Zannie.
0: (laughs) Hi. Um, Yeah, well, I come from Sydney, and um, Sydney people regularly get described as being completely boring because all we can talk about is bloody house prices. Um, But the median price for a house in Sydney is now clocked a million, um, which does mean that um, it is on lot of people's minds (laughs) and you know the uh, average rent has gone has gone through the roof Um, and personally um, you know I find myself having done the art project that Liang mentioned in her introduction um, there goes neighbourhood in Redfern in 2009 Um, I now live in Fairfield um, 40 minutes train ride um, from the city and most people who do um, like the basic jobs like teaching and ambulance workers and um, nurses and lots sort of stuff, I mean we, we report in the paper every day um, have an, over an hour and a half commute because they actually cannot afford Sydney anymore at all so we're getting this massive hinterland that's kind of growing around the city but I'm a bit of a nerd and I've prepared a few little points to consider So, and I've just had a really terrible head cold so um, I hope you don't mind me just referencing my notes a little bit so that I you know stay coherent Um, but uh, okay so I there's a tension I guess between um, enthusiasm over um, the ability of art um, to create a sense of place so I guess the placemakers on one side of this debate and um, the protests on the other side of anti-gentrification activists who are concerned about the issues that I guess we'll be talking about today and one of the factors that has informed this debate uh, to date um, has been the kind of uh, Rosalind Deutscher argument, the fine art of gentrification, which is that there's an ipso facto kind of connection between art-making and gentrification. And just, I guess, to be provocative, I wanted to challenge that here tonight and just um, perhaps open a question to say, well, now, with the benefit of time, she was writing in the 80s, is that actually true? Um, And some of my thinking is that perhaps... Uh, we missed the target a little bit in, in saying that artists were the central driving force of gentrification. So debates on the topic predictably break down into some sort of clash between people that argue that creatives are white, middle class, and fetishise the allure of working class and or migrant areas while simultaneously destroying them, versus those who argue that mourning the development of former industrial areas is nostalgic and out of touch with the working class's own aspirations for culture and change. So that's sort of where the debates kind of play out along, but what I'm sort of throwing in to the discussion tonight is perhaps that the heat of these debates has obscured Patterns, uh, shifts in patterns of urban life that artists have in fact proved a little more marginal to than we originally thought um, and that is the recolonisation of the city um, as a space for um, consumption rather than production um, so what we have is a shift from the city uh, which traditionally um, or in the 19th century was, or early 20th century was associated with the factory to the city as now being associated with the multinational corporation so it's gone from a place of um, production to a place of um, what people like Mark Gottenau call the polynucleation of um, deconcentrated space. A little bit complicated term there. Um, so in short, what I'm saying is that more of us live in cities, but these are less centralised around industrial production and more sprawling and fragmented into elite enclaves and disadvantaged ghettos connected horizontally to globalised production schedules. So that... Um, a lot of us, like myself, will live quite far from the city now, but we're still connected to that city. Um, so I just throw that in um, as perhaps to think about because I myself have often rep- uh, repeated Rosalind Deutsch's arguments and, in fact, that There Goes the Neighbourhood was based around those ideas. So I'm just throwing that in. Um, and just to say that I'm not... In saying not trying to let artists off the hook, obviously the way we engage with culture has to be incredibly mindful um, and we can exacerbate or work against this dynamic um, and that is um, a choice um, and it's how we uh, choose to produce our culture and, and and in what manners. So I probably feel like I've gone on a bit long and maybe I'm being really nerdy reading from a paper so I'm just going to have four statements that I think um, perhaps I Uh, frame perhaps thinking about these topics so um, the first one is that there'll be no creative city if artists can't afford to live in it the second one is that the cultural fabric of cities must be considered across their geographic spread so that's not just in the wealthy inner city enclaves but it's also in the suburbs and as somebody who lives in the suburbs now um, I guess that's close to my heart um, and that the right to the city is a right to for poor people to live in the city or it is no right at all. Um, and in Sydney, I think there's been a really interesting case around that recently with the block and uh, a rare glimmer of hope where the Aboriginal tent um, embassy has, uh, you know, and I give enormous respect for their struggle, um, has actually defended their right um, to be included in the housing that's been built around Redfern, one of the most gentrified um, suburbs in Sydney. Um, And the fourth one is that um, astroturfing um, is is not culture. Um, And I think uh, concurrent with this whole discussion is that culture has been inserted into the fabric of city making. Um, and that comes from the top down, and it doesn't necessarily come from artist practices. Um, and it's not necessarily the same as artist practices. It is actually a deliberate government strategy, um, and it is about making cities that are um, globally attractive tourist destinations. Um, and that is not the same as necessarily artist practice. Um, and so, you know, making those distinctions can be about um, negotiating how we choose to engage with this process. So, those are just to start discussion off, and um, I'm sure. So sure I can fill in more of my like personal experiences of art making and stuff um, as we get going.
5: Well, thank. I'll be super short. I mean, I was listening to your story, then I think we all are victim of the Manhattan syndrome, yeah. and feels like you've moved to Williamsburg, and that's not good enough now either. You've got to go out further, mm. so it <laughs> seems. Yeah. So in so many ways, we are in fact real estate <coughs> moguls ourselves of the art world we've found a way to navigate and pimp out ourselves to other networks and our business cards and fonts of who to get into bed with next so it sounds in order for us to progress um and my you know my biggest nightmare is to be a stay-home artist yeah but there are plenty of it's plenty of that happening Mm. and some facilities in the city have also recognized that problem um wholeheartedly like your good space around having the Gertrude Street etc but that's only a transitional space how can we think of it as being a long, as in longevity and also sustain our artistic practice when um, we just look behind us I think if Sir Roy Grounds was alive today he would die to see what's happened to the sprawl of, of ugliness behind the Hamer Hall etc so culture did not do itself a good service on the onset in the 80s we, we started to walk hand in hand with architecture There was a problem at the beginning. You know, we all attend an opening night in Melbourne and we're still attending it here at the M Pavilion. Melbourne can't wait to get dressed up. It can't wait for an opening night. It can't wait to find a new space up a staircase or find a collaboration that we haven't had before. And I think that's our best feature. We are showmen. We are entrepreneurial when we're improvisers and without the good tenacity of that ballsy attitude which Melbourne's always had around the culture Um, and... Therefore, we wouldn't be where we are today in that context. So for me, um the problem was transitioning from just being an email to actually having a space. Uh, i'm I'm in the performing arts, which is you know rubs in a similar way to the visual arts but there is always a line in the sand between how those two cultures can come together and celebrate collaboration in the city. But we've done a fine job of that. Uh, um, And it's recently in the last three years that we've seen physical culture become part of the collectible living museum just across the road here at your space. Um, And in the transitional process, I've spent three years searching for a home, I went to some really dodgy places <laughs> out in Whoop Whoop and found, you know, not much lark. And then I, I sort of overcapitalized on the idea of getting myself into lots of trouble and trying to get a hundred thousand dollar a year bunker where I would, you know, find find an open up shop. However, you know, I it just so happens that I've lucked upon uh, the um, a new space which will take me into tr- through a transitional phase and it will be my duty to. Support where I can. The real estate mogul of the arts to come into that space and arrest it uh, as an artist-led experience, as opposed to an artistic director giving orders. So that's a that's a huge step. And, <coughs> and in conclusion, I think about yes, when we're at the burst, we're about to we're where we are about to burst. I think we've never been in a better position in Melbourne to actually navigate and elbow our way with more room into creative capital and the ugliness behind us here, which is called Southgate. Yeah. And that was all improvised, by the way.
2: (laughs) Uh, Just following on from um, what Sean said, um, Emma was interested in thinking more about different types or models for the presentation of arts and and what we can learn from that i know this morning you mentioned uh, um gasworks and maybe you could talk a little bit to that and sure. Um,
4: so one of the things in, in obviously addition to giving notice is also to um, to do quite extensive research internationally at organizations that are not unlike um, Gertrude contemporary insofar as they support both um, production and presentation of, of contemporary art uh, and uh, I had the kind of good fortune to be part of a delegation to the um, to freeze in London and um, it's sort of like a precursor for a trip that I'll be doing next year as, as part of a, a, a fellowship um, literally looking at best practice of these organisations and two organisations that I went to in London, one is Gasworks and one is the Delphina Foundation and they both have a studio residency um, program and they also have an exhibition space. Now these both these uh, organisations um, kind of do the same thing but they're incredibly different they're, um, they could not be you know, chalk and cheese, um, in essence. So Gasworks is um, a very, very happy story. It's in Vauxhall, I was talking with um, Sarah about it. Um, they, uh, were to, about years, they were fortunate enough to. They've been there about twenty odd years. They were fortunate enough to. The pretty much the the individual who who um, you know basically forged the program still owned the building. Um, so Gasworks, you know, kind of picked themselves up and took had the tenacity to literally stage a major campaign to. Buy that building and to refurb it and to you know ensure that they had um, they were sustainable for for Emma Moore effectively. Um, now the person who uh, who um, who forged the program also ensured that they paid commercial rate um, for the sale of, of that building. So he obviously lost his um, kind of you know passion for um, you know kind of at at the. Um, uh, you know, kind of smell of a rag um, arts practice, but nonetheless they did it, um, and as a result, you had this extraordinary organization Now, the flip side of that is another organization called the Delphina and what was fascinating about the delphina, and I think it 's going in essence be true for gertrude is that um, delphina was a was an enormous um, sort of studio complex in Bermondsey, and you know it hailed artists such as taci and the likes and it, was, it had a wonderful kind of foundation um, where you had these multiple studios generally artists stayed in them for about two years um, and it also had a Michelin restaurant and the person behind it or the financer was Delfina who had a love of art but in fact she loved artists um she collected artists, she said. So she had this extraordinary site with this Michelin um, restaurant. And the one um, kind of proviso for the uh, leaseholders on the Michelin restaurant was this story does go somewhere, um, that uh, that every artist who was part of that studio complex had to smack down a dollar and they would get a meal. And there was a table and no one else could go near it. And legend has it that Delfina would you know, kind of sit there while um, you know, artists would, would um, have their various meals. That closed down because obviously Delfina and, and her partner had some acrimonious kind of um, exchanges and the, um, the Delfino st- studios were no more. Probably about three to four years later, um, Phoenix kind of emerged and from it became this bespoke residency organisation which has about probably um, maybe one tenth the volume of studios and also the space Uh, and it's a very it is a very bespoke kind of residency um, organisation that has a gallery space um, and an international sort of profile in terms of artists coming through and it programs in terms of themes and what is central to that program is a kitchen which talks back to um, the original kind of um, uh, kind of organisation. So the point being is, these are you know two kind of stories of an organisation that had the had the tenacity to buy a building, and an organisation that said goodbye to a past and embraced a kind of renewal um, and an opportunity for a very different way, more um, intimate way of of supporting um, practice. Uh, So I guess, you know, in terms of Gertrude, um, it needs to be thinking about a multiplicity of different models and what suits Melbourne the best in terms of the various
2: partnerships and
4: opportunities it can create.
2: I guess building on from that, I feel like Sean, you were definitely talking about moving, just moving completely away from real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk maybe a little bit more to that?
3: Yes. Um, yeah. I, I was thinking I'd like to say something after after your comment about uh, moving away from a past, uh, because I remember that uh, when we got a grant in our nonprofit we had to meet with um, some, like, official, like uh, consultant people who, who would kind of guide you on how to be a good nonprofit, like how to have good governance and that kind of stuff. And one of these people, like, met with us, uh, and she was, describ- she was saying, like, oh, you're a lily pad organization because you go from, like, you hop from lily pad to lily pad. That's, like, not sustainable. You only have three legs, and you need like, you know, like this, these like metaphors. <laughs> but she's like super helpful because one thing she said to us was, uh, she, she said, you know, when I started uh, in the 70s, um, like there was a special grant in the U.S. that like artists could work for a nonprofit and they get paid from the government and that doesn't exist anymore. So that like totally changes the way that the whole like cultural system in Los Angeles works. And I never thought about stuff like that. She also said uh, the rent was like a hundred bucks a week. <laughs> and um, and so you could just work a couple, you know, like maybe a few days of your month would actually pay for your whole, whole rent. And she's like, it, the world isn't like that anymore. And the more she was talking about it, the more I thought like, wow, and like to what degree do we like sort of like Try and insist on sustaining this like fantasy of a kind of world that doesn't exist anymore, but we try and like act we try and like we try and have the same kind of like art world that like was invented in the a few decades past, but no longer um, the like material realities of it like no longer sustain that kind of fantasy anymore and so um, kind of after that conversation, I began looking looking at things differently and thinking like well. Uh, oh, here's the, the, the key to the conversation was, she said, you know, the way that, uh, cause I've talked to all the other organizations in Los Angeles and the way that they're all sustainable, quote unquote, sustainable, is that they have a private funder. <laughs> no one knows about it because they always want to be secret or something. But every time they fall into like, you know, it's a make or break situation, we're gonna close. Then like someone like they have this like one person in their back pocket who like comes out of nowhere and just like gives them money and it saves them for a couple of years until they have that moment again she said every organization has that there's like there there actually are no sustainable organizations here mm. and i was just thinking like god what kind of culture is this that like this sort of depends on hollywood it depends on it like there's no there's no consistency it, it depends on on just like chance or these like one off situations that you can't you can't sort of like replicate so like it's impossible to build anything where we actually share anything because actually everyone's gonna be really protective of their one funder. So anyway, <laughs> the whole point in that sort of long-winded thing is uh, is I, I was thinking, well, yeah, to what degree is our sort of like um, insistence on kind of performing this, like, this kind of like imagination of what the art world should look like uh, actually sustainable in the present? And since I thought it actually isn't, it, for I mean, for us, I felt like it wasn't like we weren't really the right class <laughs> in order to be able to, to 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 sustain that. So we just thought, well, we try and uh, have different, try and invent different ways of working, you know, and it might mean that we do stuff that doesn't really look like
2: art anymore. Sandy, I was wondering what kinds of responsibilities – you kind of touched on this at the end – what kinds of responsibilities do you think artists have in relation to their artistic projects, the projects that they create and critique um, in their critique of the process of gentrification?
0: Um, I mean, I guess – Yeah it's always specific and complex to answer that so I don't think it's possible to give a general answer but I think intuitively we can feel it in our bones or wherever when we go to something that's astroturfed or when we go to something that has some sort of organic connection to artist practice and local culture and and community or you know whatever in a a space Um, and so um, I guess it's um, it's following that intuitive vein um, in the choices that we make, and that's a really difficult thing to do because artists are poor, you know, and there's a lot of money that is offered in terms of commissions in in projects that probably are more implicated in kind of redesigning or rebranding the city around a you know a sort of a homogenized idea of of culture. Um, and that pressure pressure is is real and I don't think you know we should get on our moral high horses about you know people make choices and um, I guess as I said, we have to consider them specifically um, rather than trying to generalise about it you know Um, but uh, yeah just sort of more broadly touching on some of the other issues that people have raised um, I think what Sean was saying is quite interesting because perhaps in Sydney without anyone noticing this kind of shift took place where and now it's just sort of catching up that everyone is noticing, um, but that a whole lot of artists um, started moving to and working in or coming from, because, you know, they're coming from sort of, you know, more working class or migrant or poor backgrounds or whatever, from Western Sydney. And, you know, it was sort of like the, the centre of Sydney, like the MCA and the Archive of New South Wales and the kind of this, the inner city um, art space and so forth were kind of the, the really main institutions. But then there's been this kind of real um, rethinking and self-questioning and this sort of, uh, about the, the weight of Western Sydney where I guess that people have found spaces that are still accessible you know and and that means like the decision about um, sort of reinventing suburbia and and the idea that the artist is the inner city creature um, perhaps rethinking that um, and you know and I I know just from my own personal experience of having moved to, to Fairfield um, which is an interesting place I mean it's I think the most multicultural uh urban environment anywhere in Australia um, uh, you know and actually it has a really fantastic contemporary arts centre that is doing really amazing programming and it has a lot of culture um, so it hasn't been like moving into sort of the boondocks or, or whatever um, and and there, there is space to be had there um, that is somewhat affordable you know. but the problem is and that's why I think that we can't abandon space altogether is that Even in the period that I've been in Fairfield, which is about four years or so, land value's gone up by 24%. Because Sydney is so expensive in general, it just pushes out you know so it's like wherever you go and then you start to like put down some roots and make some culture it's like it the spread just gets bigger you know um, and so that's why i think there does also need to be an agenda of saying well perhaps we also have to fight a little bit back in and reclaim space and i totally understand everything you're saying about you know being flexible and individual organizations trying to survive but as a whole the artist community perhaps needs to put on some fights in some places to say well how far can we get pushed before it just becomes ridiculous and we need to think about things like how we redesign cities and and ask questions about things like public housing. Why did we only do that in the 70s? Like, you know, um, who's benefiting from, like, a two-bedroom flat in Glebe being sold for a million dollars like this is crazy like we need to re-challenge some ideas about land ownership but I mean those are really big questions and that that's not an easy thing for any individual artist or any individual organisation to take on but I think they hang over this conversation because ultimately we probably can't just keep um, you know moving further and further into the the gaps because you know capital keeps chasing us.
2: Um, Philip,
4: um, like you to say oh yeah, oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I just in, in counter to that, um, like again, um, having read, there's a, like an A to Z of, of um, cultural planning that um, that the mayor of, of London has actually yeah. um, put out, mm-hmm. and it's quite um, it's quite proactive uh, in terms of it's not just flexibility; it's actually, uh, I guess, being ahead of the game, where you know you. Um, you kind of, you you hop into bed with that capital and you try and um, uh, kind of carve out spaces for, um, you know, uh, production or presentation in these sort of structures. And and what I mean by that is, um, you know, different initiatives that that are able to um, dovetail, um, you know, kind of artist needs, You know with a commercial imperative so that in some ways you might have you know um, a building full of 40 new apartments but 20 percent of that are affordable housing and or studios and you know that's come through uh kind of planning effectively um and i think you know having been you know advising or sitting on a couple of um, sort of planning panels um, you know there there are gestures towards those sort of relationships coming and um, you know and I, I think that Melbourne and Sydney are, are, are cognizant of that I'm not saying they're leading the way um, but they're certainly looking internationally at, at other sort of um, ways in which uh, you know the, the, the desire to inhabit a creative city to live next door to, to artists who are producing um, can actually be accommodated.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. And that seems to be your experience, Philip, yep. given that you've just moved, you're about to move mm. into a new space, mm, well, Yes. hopefully.
5: Yes, well, just going on that, I will come mm. to that, and I was thinking of Neo Metro as an example that are acknowledging the creative capital of 10% of their building <clears throat> when developing the site, and that was part of the city of... Uh, Yarra, yeah, we're discussing that at a few meetings we were last year. Um, but also just, and going back to, we'll get to that question, the The idea of the collaborative space and what's wrong with that, that still exists conceptually as an opportunity for real estate to continue to grow. Um, I think of the early Ballet Lab induction to the Melbourne art scene and what I did to get attention (laughs) that's another story so and over the years there's some goodies yeah and over the years those relationships have ripened that can exist in many frameworks in the city including yours and yours and hopefully you too so uh, there was a point where yeah, I felt like throwing in the towel. There was, I, I, you know, after the Brandis rain and how that we were all going to wash up after the tsunami. Who survives? What's going to happen? And then that shifts, obviously, overnight our thinking when we have to be put under pressure. Um, and in in, in the stream of getting sucked into the vortex, where you know we want to come out to the black hole, the other end, and see the new galaxy. I I knew the new galaxy. I talk about the paradigm of the Melbourne fabric that we all love and have nurtured and carved out, as you say, the identity from the 80s, 90s, noughties, and and, uh, the teenies, right? Hmm. So, yeah, the transitional phase is terrifying and exciting. How can I still exist as a small to medium arts organisation and find rest, support, money, philanthropy, um, council support, <laughs> and also work with a partner organisation to arrest a program which draw audience, community, merging practice, commission, residency spaces, international exchange and tick all the fricking boxes that you can <laughs> in order to sex up a site to which will be a new profile in a hub of interdisciplinary practice for me and a partner organisation. Oh my God, you sound
4: like my strategic yeah. plan. <laughs> oh, isn't it?
5: So I'm right in that headspace at the moment. So yeah, we're all a contingent work of art in our own right and it's all (laughs) been led by but this comes from passion and tenacity and the thrill I couldn't be, I, like I said earlier, I don't think Melbourne's in the best position it's ever been in. Um, you know, we can gripe to the cows come home about space and the destruction of, you know, real estate moguls taking over and, and uh, hell, I've moved to Spotswood and I've never felt better about being in the outer west. I couldn't go to a quad Altona and further out, but I'm really enjoying the fact that um, what is now, we are, I asked the question and I'm getting off track, which is probably my best feature, the, um, what is the inner ring of Melbourne now? Where do the artists draw a line in the circle, etc.? And how far out can we go in order to keep continuing claiming the space uh, to which we need in order to practice our art form, etc.? So the idea of finding a space in the inner city, we well, forget it. It's okay. Maybe it's gone. It's okay to acknowledge that. And collaboration space still exists in the paradigm of our, our thinking. You know, it's the trigger in order us to find a position and For example, Melbourne Now was a great example of drawing the artist community to a position where you'd never seen the life of the city so exhibited in a position uh, side by side together as we went through the halls of the NGV and the Ian Potter. So back on track. The bringing my and going through this transitional phase it's all trial and error and it is an improvisation but we have to be diligent and smart about how we talk to that process through council and also the beloved australia council of the arts and our local sheriff creative victoria the philanthropic organisations which built this pavilion we're sitting under and how the conversation starts and then becomes viral as we process the the, the marketability of our product into a site that oh, I just so happen to—I can't announce this quite yet—but I'm um, sure you will all, you know, in the future, um, get just as excited as I am about the potentials of this new space in Melbourne. So, um, yeah, it's trial and error, improvisation, um, smart diligence, due diligence around that, and a really smart and strategic plan and a board <laughs> that, <laughs> that along, the, in, along the way in this process.